Welcome to Inside Out. I'm Jen Pelley, Associate Reviews Editor at Pitchfork. Inside Out is a series of podcasts from Pitchfork that explores new perspectives on music, art, and culture. Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Build your brand, sell more stuff. Thurston Moore is a founding member of Sonic Youth and an icon of counterculture. Formed in 1981 and currently on hiatus, Sonic Youth were quintessential downtown New Yorkers, drawing on noise, no wave, and hardcore punk to shape ideas of alternative indie and art rock in the underground and beyond. Their influence remains immeasurable. Moore has released many solo albums, most recently this year's excellent rock and roll consciousness. His wide-ranging collaborations include Yoko Ono, John Zord, and Merzbau. Moore publishes poetry and music books through his Ecstatic Peace Library, and in 2015, he released Stereo Sanctity, a collection of his lyrics and poems. He currently lives in London. This talk was recorded in July in front of an audience at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Thurston and I met up just a few hours before his band played a pre-show for this year's Pitchfork Music Festival. I've always been intrigued by Thurston's fascination with the written word, and I wanted to ask him about the poetry classes he teaches most summers in Boulder, Colorado, at Naropa University's Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. Our conversation focused on poetry, printed matter, and how it fits alongside his music. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Thurston, for coming too. Yeah, yes. It's nice to be here. <laughs> so when I was thinking about entry points into talking about your career, it seemed like there were infinite ways we could go about it. And something that was potentially interesting to me was talking about writing and poetry, language, uh, like books, printed matter, all of that, and how it has kind of been present over the years. And I've always been curious to hear about your role as a teacher at Naropa University. Yeah, I never really fancied myself uh, a teacher or, or, or being involved with academics in, in any capacity, although I, I come from a family of, of teachers. My father was a university professor uh, up until he died in, in, in the 70s. And um, he taught philosophy, man and nature courses. He, he taught uh, uh, art history and music. And so... Um, my father was a bit of an academic intellectual. And so I guess I had that as a model. Um, and there was other uh, members of my immediate family that were involved with academics. So it made sense. But I was not, I was not interested. In fact, I think I was probably um, pretty rebellious against it, like not wanting to be liking school because school was such a big thing in our family. And I kind of wanted to um, maybe sort of just uh, not regard it so much and um, react against it as a, as a child will do in, in that kind of situation. Um, but I, uh, I sort of got into it um, in my late 40s. I'm 50, I'm turning 59 this year. So I was like my late 40s, early 50s. And uh, I got re very involved with um, doing my own research into post-war underground poetry uh, and its publication and, its, and, its, and in the actual activity of it. Um, the personalities involved with it and the whole lineage of that history was became really fascinating to me. Uh, and it was really correlative to my interest in underground music, uh, specifically punk rock, et cetera. Um, and that relationship between those practitioners and the, and the people in, in, in the poetry underground. And I started having poetry readings, uh, 
up in Northampton, Massachusetts, where I lived um, for most of the uh, early 2000s, the first decade at least, alongside Byron Coley, who's a, who's a rock writer who lives up there. And he, he's an archivist of, of underground poetry as well. And so we, between the two of us, we started uh, really getting involved with um, amassing a huge archive of these documents that we thought were uh, lost in the culture. And we would start having readings. And um, Ann Waldman, who's a poet from New York since the, the late 50s, early 60s, um, she had, along with Allen Ginsberg, founded a uh, summer writing workshop at Naropa University, which originally was Naropa Institute, and it was founded by a, um, a Buddhist uh, scholar, uh, teacher, guru, uh, named Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and he was Allen Ginsberg's Buddhist teacher. And he had asked Ginsberg to have a, a poetry school at the university. So him and, Al and Waldman founded what's called the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics in 1974. Um, and it has a remarkable reputation. His faculty was uh, completely amazing. It was, you know, Kathy Acker and Diane DePrima and Gregory Corso and William S. Burroughs. Um, Ishmael Reed and, and musicians like Cecil Taylor and Meredith Monk uh, would would have would have courses there, and I was aware of it to some degree uh, throughout the '80s and into the '90s. I became certainly more aware of it with my my own personal studies into um, into underground poetry and poetry in general. And I we had Ann Waldman come up to do a couple of readings along with Gerard Malanga and Charlie Plymel and some other people, and she walked into my. Um, my room in my house and it was just I just had poetry books stacked floor to ceiling and I had shelving shelves of, of like uh, somewhat organized uh, poetry by publisher and by different authors mostly of the stapled Xerox kind you know and um, or stapled Mimeo as far as 60s stuff and she just took one glance at it and said I want you to teach at the school and I said well I really don't have time to do such a thing because Sonic Youth was so was so active but as things kind of slowed down in, in that situation I uh I took her up on it and I and I um I think about five years ago I started teaching there this is the first summer I haven't taught in five years there and I was and so I didn't really know how to approach it because I never really have taught in a classroom before I, and so I was very sort of frightened and uh, apprehensive I had I asked Eileen Miles, who taught for many years there and still does, like what I should do, like what was the best way to, to approach something like that. And she just said, every day, think of something you can accomplish as opposed to like the big picture of like getting something done throughout a course. Like every day, sort of have these small things happen that create one unified thing at the end. And that really sort of was important for me to hear. So that's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your classes on? Are they workshops or do you teach on specific subjects? Well, they're pretty small. I mean, they're like maybe a dozen people in the class, sometimes, you know, maybe close to 20 if, you know, if sometimes it matters how popular the, the teacher is. Uh, it's always four weeks, although I think it's, it's the bureaucracy of the school is to sort of cut it down to three weeks this year. I think since Alan passed away, it's become, you know, it's be, a lot of the, the workload is just on Ann Waldman and to her 
credit. She's just been, you know, she's, she spends such an inordinate amount of time, you know, making sure that, that, that writing workshop is completely active and really, um, something that appeals to sort of the contemporary interests of young students who are interested in poetry. You know, in the last few years, it's been more about, um, focusing, um, less on sort of that lineage of kind of, uh, beat culture, uh, which, you know, and it's in, in a way, even though it was sort of, um, very conscious of its, of its, of its relationship within gender, it's always been a very male, uh, centric, uh, culture a subculture. And so there's been a lot of interest in, 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 uh, examining that. And so that uh, I think she's been very, uh, focused on uh, trying to bring in more sort of gender studies in, in literature in, in the school. And, uh, so that makes it very interesting. But the uh, of the four weeks that happen there, the fourth week is usually more focused on uh, people who have involvement in poetry and outside of poetry, specifically in music and performance. And so the fourth week it will be um, well, people like myself or Laurie Anderson will be there, and 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 uh, so it becomes more uh, sort of quote unquote sort of performative centric, which I sort of like don't really want to be part of. I kind of want to be part of more sort of like real raw uh, discussion of, of, of what poetry is uh, without it having to be um, couched uh, necessarily with like music or lyrics or like that. But I, I understand why, because I'm a musician. <laughs> but uh, so, but I, I really want to talk just more about poetry. So I go there... And I, I make this sort of um, concession where I will talk about poetry such as New York School, like the th different generations of New York School poetry, which always sort of intersect with, uh, you know, a society of music, sort of like, you know, be it Patti Smith or Richard Hell or Tom Verlaine or Lou Reed or, you know, um, people who uh, are recording artists who have, a, a, you know, a very significant toehold in the poetry world as well, yeah. I feel like that what is poetry, like you just said, is an interesting question. And like from your perspective, what makes something poetic? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, poetry is, you know, like any discipline in, in, in the arts is just, it's sort of the essence of language, you know? Uh, it's like it, it, it transcends, um, you know, real time, you know? Um, so something that's poetic is, I think, is something that's, it goes into a, a place that's, a place where say like meditation takes you, you know, the relationship between the physical and the metaphysical, you know, um, the known and the unknown and that, and that communication as such, which is what, uh, I think all great art and literature and music does. It's almost, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of an experience that's akin to what's trying to be attained through, um, religious experience, you know, that, that communication with, um, that which is sort of beyond our, our ken. And uh, so that's all really fascinating to me. And I've always been interested in uh, writing and music where it's a dialogue between um, the spiritual and then just the artfulness of, of, of who you are as a, as a human creature. Do you feel like that's amplified for you the past few years? Because I feel like Naropa University has this um, Buddhist foundation, right? Um, it seems like a really spiritual place to go to every year. Has that like impacted you? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, um, 
the school is certainly uh, founded on 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 aspects of Tibetan Buddhist uh, teachings, um, and that's not some, something that I was primarily attracted to by by teaching at the school. And I don't think many of the people on the faculty um, are necessarily of you know have Buddhist practice, you know, um, but some do. And it's not something that is um, necessary to to be involved uh, with teachings at Naropa. Um, I mean, they, it's not you know, they don't force Buddhism on you. I mean, do you you can actually wake up early enough and go to like meditation class before you go to your your class, and and uh, you know some people do, some people don't. But do you do that? I have, yeah, yeah. But you know, I um, meditation to me is like it's like getting a massage. I find it really painful sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too big for it. I, don't know. I well, I mean, that was you know, meditation to me. I was it made me think about like what that practice sort of uh, is about, and it's about sort of selflessness. But I always find it's you're so um, into yourself in the practice, and so that to me is like it, it's it's. It, I think it takes um, a certain amount of time to sort of get to this place where you actually sort of become. Uh, removed from your ego in meditation, even though it is just primarily you as as somebody who's um, within that practice. So I I'm really f- sort of fascinated by it, and it sort of led me to this thinking, like where I actually sort of find um, some sense of universality or some sense of sort of foreverness, you know. Uh, in 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 my life, and it, it's it's basically through my uh, devotion to uh, to to music, primarily rock and roll music, and that that's pretty much how I came up with the title "Rock and Roll Consciousness." Was just through sort of considering that. That's part of why I asked because I heard that you came up with that title um, while thinking about those things. Um, can I ask you a question? <laughs> Uh, like. What is the title of your raincoats book? Uh, it's just the raincoats. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking, though. No, I'm really excited by it. That's uh, we were actually just listening to some raincoats tracks in the van today as we were driving from Minneapolis. Which one? Well, this one track that I really like that's called "In Love." Oh yeah, it's one of your or, favorite songs. Yeah, right? it's such a good song. Yeah, I and, remember singing um, on a list of your favorite songs once. Yeah, and the and and black and white. Oh, as, perfect. As well. Yeah, so. But that's that's so cool. Did you do lots of? Um, did, did, uh, did you? Do, I imagine I imagine you interviewed everybody from from the group. The uh, yeah, part. I did. Yeah. And actually, um, it's funny because I feel like in the realm of books and publishing, you're kind of all over the place. I feel like I'm constantly just by chance coming across books and it's like, oh, Thurston Moore was involved with this one too, sick. And like last year I went to London for the Rough Trade 40th anniversary celebrations and uh, got a hold of the Rough Trade magazine uh, anthology thing that you put out. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's just because um, I like to make things and I always have. And I, you know, I think when I, my first moved to New York, in the in the seventies and was playing in bands and before I, Sonic Youth uh, started in eighty, um, I always wanted to be like on those records that were compilations um, and and I just really I think what it really attracted to me about uh, the work was 
the the community involved and as opposed to sort of just being the kind of singular band or artist you know um standing alone i always sort of like the group the idea of group activity so i always liked the compilations and i really was super inspired and informed by fanzines because they would have a litany of names on, on them and i was just like so there was all these people involved and they were sort of interconnected just through the editorialship of the fanzine and um sometimes it'd be really clean or sometimes it'd be really chaotic and so all these things uh for me were like the signals of what i wanted to do and i just like constantly um would send things out and i i kind of still do that some guy just wrote a book that just got published called we sing a new language which he interviewed like everybody that ever put a cassette tape out that i was on and when i heard that he was doing that i was amazed i said there's there's i mean i don't think you're going to be able to find everybody because but he he did such a, a an admirable job and um when i looked at the book it was so cool because i'm just a cipher in it and every everybody um sort of tells their own story of like running a cassette label like in 1992 for like you know for a year or a year and a half and like what they were doing and where they were living and you know why they started some kind of noise cassette label and then somebody saying like oh i have thurston moore's address why don't you write to him maybe he'll send you something and and every time somebody would write to me or find me i would i would um i would sit down and i would record something and then i would sort of lay some artwork out and i would put it in an envelope and i'd send it to him and then they would be like Oh my God, here, you know, um, I've always done that. Um, even before Sonic Youth got any kind of profile, it always happened. So, which was always kind of weird because as soon as Sonic Youth became sort of almost famous, I, I started getting a lot of like, well, why are you doing that? Like, why are you, like, why are you slumming in the underground kind of thing? I was like, I've actually, this, it, it, it's not my fault that, you know, <laughs> we're like, on yeah, that, that book is, uh, that book, we, we Sing a New Language, uh, is fascinating to me because I feel like every few pages it's a different story, but it all... That book. Yeah, that book. Yeah, yeah. yeah the book that's coming out that is like an oral discography. He's an English writer. He's really good. He's, his next book is, um, he's doing a, a, a bio of swans. Oh, okay. And, uh, which is kind of great. It's like, fourth, <laughs> you know, and, and with the good graces of Michael Girard, he's doing this book. So he's going to interview everybody about swans. And he was, <laughs> he was just telling me, uh, the last time I talked to him, he was like, you know, when I was doing your book, it was, um, it was really fun because everybody was just so, like, they were just really happy to talk to me about uh, what a pleasure it was to sort of, you know, uh, work with you. Whereas the Swans book, it's, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> I didn't know that you were in Swans. I learned that for, like, a playing bass for, like, a second. Uh, well, yeah, I mean... I, um, I played bass and, and yeah. Swansea for a few gigs, re like really early on. We used to rehearse in uh, the same place, which was Michael Girard's, um bedroom. You know, like it was a windowless room, like way deep in the East Village of New York City. Um, and when he moved to New York, I um, was just starting uh, the Sonic Youth. And it was basically just me, uh, me, Kim and Lee as a trio. And we would have different people sort of play with us and, and we had different names before we were called Sonic Youth but Michael was right there he had come from LA and his his reputation sort of preceded him as being a very I don't know difficult kind of person but uh we immediately became best friends 
because um, he was sort of just super negative and I was super positive. And so somehow that kind of worked. <laughs> so we would bomb around. But we were both completely destitute and poor too. So that was like our, as we traded on that. So Just on the topic of books, when you think about, because I feel like there are so many book projects that you've been involved with over the years, putting stuff out on Exodic Peace and releasing poetry books. Are there any particular projects you've been involved with that you feel like are super meaningful for you? There's so many different kinds of books that I that I would love to make with different artists, different poets. But, it, you know, it's just, you do what you can do with like whatever coin you have, you know. Um, I do like a poetry journal that I, I've always done just with stapled Xerox. And I would talk to other small press poetry publishers, uh, especially at, at Naropa, and a lot of their imprints, they would always sort of graduate to sort of um, perfect binding or at least sort of more sophisticated binding than stapled Mimeo or stapled Xeroxes, which is how a lot of them sort of start out. But I always maintained it. And I always, I always sort of liked the, um, there, I thought there was a certain dignity in that, that economy. Um, and I didn't want to sort of feel like I had to advance from that because I thought it was completely functional and I thought there was a beauty in it. And I thought it's reference to the work that existed uh, beneath the radar in the 60s and 70s was um, was a really honorable reference because I thought there was such beauty in that work. So I had no interest in going into perfect binding. Um, and so somebody like the poet Lewis Warsh, who has an uh, imprint called Adventures in Poetry, which is a great American underground poetry imprint, he said, don't, yeah, because he had done that. And he was just like, oh, yeah, don't ever... Don't do what I did. <laughs> and uh, so I don't. And um, If someone was interested in getting into like underground poetry, small press poetry, and didn't know where to start, is there like a place that you would recommend beginning? There's, well, there's SPD, which is a small press distribution, which is in um, California around San Francisco. And uh, that's a great place. It's a, it's a distribution house for, for a wealth of small underground poetry imprints and presses. And, and they're very, they're pretty descriptive about what they have. And if, I mean, as far as like getting some sense of what, who's who and what the history is and trying to sort of parse out like things that appeal uh, to oneself, there's, I think there's a lot of literature that can sort of bring you into that, um, that zone of interest, uh, you just go to the bookstore and sort of look for books on books, you know, or just it's, it's there if you want it, you know, kind of thing. I mean, you can also just go online and just sort of like read all this stuff, but you can't touch it. I don't really, I mean, to me, I, I, it's all about the physical. It's all about the vibrational aspects of the work. You know, um, I think that's why I like making records and books and I don't really have any interest in having doing things like on SoundCloud or whatever. I don't have any problem with it because I think it's a it's 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 a really sort of um, everybody's on the same page. It's non-hierarchical, and you can and you can have your work coexist. Uh, and I think that's kind of really cool. It's really utopian kind of thing, but it, it doesn't have any. There's no physical value to it. You can't really smell it or touch it or you know or do anything with it you know physically. So it doesn't have any vibrational aspect to it. Um, and that to me is, that's where I find a connection 
I don't, you know, so it's like the, otherwise the work is just sort of conceptual to me and it's like, it exists just conceptually and that's, you know what I mean? It's like what yeah. I, I remember like Sun Ra used to say, like when Sun Ra would go on tour, uh, he would ask a promoter from Egypt or whatever to send him fabric from the country that he was going to tour to Philadelphia where he was living. So he would have the vibrational, uh, you know, information from the territory that he was going to visit and he could be prepared. And that sounds really kind of, you know, funny Sun Ra esoterica, but I, I, I think that's like, you know, for me philosophically that really works. I like sort of, um, that romance of reality. I thought it was really cool in, uh, in 2015 that you released a collection of your lyrics and your poetry, Stereo Sanctity. Yeah. Um, and I guess it also made me wonder for you if, um, if you see a distinction between what you write as poetry and what you write as lyrics. Um, because it, it does seem also like literature has just been so present in your music. I think of, you know, I, I have my theory of like what, what the distinction between lyric writing and poetry is just, is, is fairly straightforward. I mean, I see poetry as, as, um, words on a page. I see it as a visual medium of like what the line break is and what it actually sort of, uh, it looks like on the page. And, um, and having some kind of sense of what that history is in, in poetry, like poetics, you know, where you, you acknowledge that, you know, uh, poetry as history from, you know, from 20th century, 19th century to the 16th century to like early, you know, Tang Dynasty, you know, I mean, it's just like wanting to write poetry is like wanting to make music. It's like you, you, you can come out of a void with it and create something amazing. But I, I find the most interesting work is, is by people who really have some kind of, a, some kind of um, personal research and acknowledgement of what that history is. And so with poetry, I'm really interested in that. And even with people in, into the 20th century who sort of react and break away from um, strictures and academic uh, you know, formulaic ideas of what poetry is or just you know, how it's taught and wanting to sort of destroy that and rebuild. And, but they still know what, the, what you're destroying is really important. And so I find in poetry that is, that's what I look for is, like, is that personal knowledge and sort of that you can learn from. And, and so you, you see rhythm and line break and meter and uh, all these linguistic uh, ideas that are, that are happening on a page. That visual is really important to me. And then as far as poetry being an, uh, an oral, the tradition of the oral, um, that it becomes really interesting for me as, a, as these different dynamics in, in culture, you know, like, you know, so where uh, different aspects of culture are more primarily... Uh, have a more primary history of, of being like oral, like, you know, the orality of, 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 of spoken word. And as far as like, you know, the, the written word. And so I, I, I find that, um, lyrics don't necessarily necessitate that so much. Lyrics are just really in, in the service of, of the song. Lyrics are like in the service of the music and they kind of, that's a relationship that, um, that doesn't really exist for poetry standing alone. I think you can take poems and poetry and sort of rejig them to sort of work within uh, music. But lyrics taken away from the music 
don't really succeed as poetry by itself sometimes. And there's like this example, I remember reading from somebody writing about this and talking about how Bob Dylan's lyrics uh, to Blonde on Blonde um, were printed in Esquire magazine in the 60s. And, you know, as a preview of the album, like Bob Dylan's next album was coming out, it's Blonde on Blonde, here's the lyrics, or some of the lyrics in the magazine. And, and this writer was saying, well, they were kind of unremarkable as he read them. He thought they were kind of like, sort of clumsy rhyming club couplets and you know it's just like this is kind of bad poetry you know and he felt a little sort of um weird about it but then the record came out and it's just like oh, this is the most brilliant you know verbiage that you know that any uh person in the in the rock world has has, has put on on record and he said it was all it was it was the music sort of changed it it was all in the service of the music and then the delivery the singing you know and so that's another thing. It's like the reading of it. I'm not really interested in the reading of, of poetry. And so doing poetry readings, I find to be a little bit of a, of, of a challenge because it sort of has to be something that becomes something else. It becomes like this, it, it, it becomes a performance. It becomes this sound. And uh, sometimes I find that um, I don't really want to hear the, the poet read that person's poetry. I want to sort of have it be in the voice that's in my own consciousness. And... I would go see Allen Ginsberg do readings sometimes and specifically when he did some uh, historical reading of Howl, like at St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York, you know, in the 90s. And I remember going like, oh, this is going to be great to hear Allen read Howl, you know, and it, everybody who showed up at this thing. And and uh, I didn't enjoy it because he was reading it with inflections that I didn't like, <laughs> you know, because when I read how I read it, like, you know, I saw the best minds of my generation, you know, but he was saying, I saw the best minds of my generation. I was like, no, 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 no. That's not how you read That's That's not how it goes. <laughs> you know, so. Did you teach a class on Ginsburg at Naropa? No, Alan had died before I, I, I taught there. He died in the 90s. I knew him a little bit because he was always in the East Village when I was living there. I lived on 13th Street between um, B and C, and he lived on 12th Street between um, A and B. And I didn't know him even then when I was living, you know, in those streets, but I would always see him around. And uh, he was just part of the neighborhood. And he's like one of those people that was so much part of the neighborhood that you thought they would just be there forever. And so when he, when he died, it was just like, um, I don't know. It's sort of like what Carrie Brownstein said after Bowie died. It's like, it's like a color had left the world, you know. Since we've been talking about words and poetry, I thought we could do some word associations, if that's okay. Word associations, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to say these words, and then if you could, like, say the first thing that comes to mind. And, you, and I'm going to mishear your words, and so I'll I'm going to say them. them. <laughs> I'll say them <laughs> very clearly. Uh, <laughs> divine. Grace. Nothing. I was trying to think of the Philip K. Dick book. Oh, Invasion. <laughs> <laughs> Divine Invasion was one of my favorite Philip K. Dick books. So that's what I was reaching for. But I went to the Noted. somewhere else. Uh, trash. Vaudeville. <laughs> you know what that means? There was a story yeah. called Trash and Vaudeville. And like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Glitter. Glitter. Trash. <laughs> Space. Pirate. Uh, hell. 
Hell. Richard. <laughs> Flower. Flower? Nirvana. Now, why did I say that? Why did I say Nirvana? Flower. Because I went from flower to in bloom to Nirvana. Like it's a good one. Yeah. I just went, yeah. If you need to know. I'm 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 interested. Desperate. Love dolls. <laughs> you know that one, right? Desperate love doll superstar. Love doll superstar. Yeah, yeah. Love doll yeah, superstar. Yeah, yeah. Sst. Cookie. What? Cookie? Kidney? No, cookie. Oh, cookie. Yeah. A monster. Uh, president. What? President. Asshole. Uh, we're going to open it up to audience questions now. Uh, hello? Hi. Um, so I've been teaching myself guitar for about nine years or so. And I came across Sonic Youth and got into your band over the years. Um, like, I remember first trying to, like, learn the songs and then finding out that, you know, Sonic Youth, most of the guitars are in different tunings. And so uh, one of the things I wanted to know was, um, first, uh, why did you decide to use different guitar tunings in Sonic Youth? And also, how did were you able to determine which songs used a particular different tuning? So w why did we decide to use uh, alternate guitar tunings? Yeah. Um, well, I never really learned how to play traditional guitar, but it, I had some kind of, um, I had some, I had some lessons. My, I had an older brother who, who played uh, electric guitar. And so, I, and I, I was the first one in my family to get an electric guitar. I, I got one, like a really cheap guitar. And then he started playing and he started mastering it. And then he kind of became like the guitar player. And then I, I was just like, you know, I was too young. But then I sort of would become interested in it. So I started playing what became his guitar and, uh, and learning, just teaching myself. Um, and I knew how to play like an E chord and some major chords and some minor chords and a couple of things. I, th I think when um, I first wanted to sort of move to New York and be in a band as, as a teenager, I was like, I turned 20 in, in 1978. So when I was like 18 and 19, like 76 and 77, and then I, I, I was really sort of getting into, um, when I started finding, when I, certainly when I found out about like the Ramones and being kind of interested in that, and then they put out that first album. And I remember buying that first album and thinking like, oh, this is cool. And I learned how to like play like that, like the, cause I knew how to play a bar chord. And so I started writing all these songs, like on bar chords, or I mean, I wrote a couple of songs that I thought were kind of similar, like, you know, um, I don't want to mow the lawn no more was one of them. And, uh, and then, you know, and I, and I, uh, and then I heard Anarchy in the UK, the seven inch by the Sex Pistols. And that was like, that was really amazing. And so I, I could sort of play some things like that. I could play sort of um, like Smoke on the Water and by Deep Purple but all these sort of the beginnings, like I never really was interested in, in like the whole song. I just wanted to play like, like that, that kind of nugget that sort of starts the song and it's like, oh, that's good enough. And then I would just sort of pretend and I would start freaking on the guitar. And then I, when I started playing with some uh, people in New York, they were just as untutored as I was. 
and then I think they had aspirations towards being more, um, uh, I don't know, the better players. And the idea was to be in a band that was like television or talking heads or like this kind of thing. And so we were kind of working towards that, but I would never sort of practice and they would always practice. But I was kind of becoming more, I was better <laughs> in a way. And they were like really confused by that. Like you never practice, but you kind of are, you're, you're kind of playing better. And, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I read a couple of songs like in, in normal tuning, but you know, it was funny cause, uh, I remember going to see things at like these different little art spaces in New York. And, and I was, I remember walking in and hearing, um, uh, Glenn Bronco doing like a, a six guitar, uh, piece. And what I had heard was all of a sudden kind of, um, uh, it was like, I was hearing what I was like kind of, thinking about like what uh, a, a group could sound like and he was accomplishing it and I couldn't figure out like how he was getting this this sound and and then I um I found out that he had six guitars and each guitar was tuned to one of the six strings on a guitar so he had one he had the, the one guitar was like all it's like low E strings and the other guitar was like all high E strings and there was like the A string guitar and so it was like one big electric guitar making this thing so everybody's just playing open strings and they were just like noting the the frets and not playing like rock, rock and roll, like Aerosmith or even like Ramones. It was like playing something else entirely where it was just like ideas that were just about like musical sound and, and these, these, these compositions. And, and they were just really ferocious and loud and just kind of like really wild. And, and, and I remember really loving that. And there was things around that um, at that time that, like DNA and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks and the Contortions, all these bands like the No Wave bands. And they were playing like as if they just picked up a guitar that morning and they were just like making this great music. And so there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of information there that you could do. Like you can have these really great bands and not really sort of play traditional guitar. Um, it didn't seem like any really big idea. I didn't, you know, there was always like these precursors like the Velvet Underground used different tunings and, uh, and, and there's blues tunings that were being employed through rock and roll, such as the way Keith Richards was playing. And these are things we would find out about, you, you know, through the years. And when I sort of decided that I wanted to get away from any sort of traditional or orthodox playing, it, it was right after the first band I was in, the band I was telling you about, and we were called The Coachman, and we kind of like stopped. And then I met somebody else, this piano player, and I started um, kind of going to her apartment and we were sort of jamming and I just remember like, okay, now I'm going to start fresh and I'm not going to like have to like rely on any sort of traditional aspect of playing. And I just wanted, I just want this sound to be free. And this was like without any sort of notion of what like free improvisation is or free jazz or free music or anything. It was just like my own sort of like this kind of weird epiphany I had is like, I'm just going to be free to be able to to express myself. And so I just started, while she was playing sort of <laughs> like chords on the piano, I just started plugged in. I started playing feedback and just like shredding all over the guitar. And then we did that for a while. And then well, let's try something else. And so she started playing something else. And I did exactly the same thing, right? I just started playing feedback and shredding all over the guitar. And I always remember like, she just looked at me with like concern saying like, do you always play like that? And <laughs> And I just, I just like, well, I said, now I do. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, 
and I think I just felt like this kind of sense of liberation, like I'm just going, to, this is my thing. I'm just going to be really open. But I also was, I wanted to write songs. And I think as soon as I kind of like hooked in with playing with like Lee Ronaldo and Kim, and then it was just this idea of like, we can do anything, you know, and Lee had sort of some kind of history of playing, you know, you know, uh, traditional guitar and uh, Kim did not. And so it was like, oh, you play the bass and we'll play guitar and then we'll just do these things. And, and well, what kind of guitars do we have? Well, we don't really have any guitars, so we'd have to sort of borrow guitars. I would borrow them from Glenn, who I started like becoming friendly with and eventually playing with. And he had tons of cheap guitars and they just didn't, they didn't sound good anyway, like tuned normally, they just, they just sounded clunky. So we just started like uh, trying different things. And even before tunings, it was all about just noting them, which means like getting, uh, different implements like drumsticks or screwdrivers or anything cylindrical and putting it under different frets and then sort of playing on different sides of the bridge and then sort of turning the, the tuning pegs to sort of create some kind of uh, some kind of relative, uh, you know, tuning on the six strings. And it was all very sort of young and sort of, um, you know, exploratory. I think at some point I really got into this thing of just closing my eyes and with the guitar and just playing it open and turning the tuning pegs until it was a, a chord that just sounded to me like a, a musical chord that affected me. And then I would keep it that way and try to figure out like what those notes were and write them down. And then I would start creating different fingerings with it, you know, and that's sort of how it started. But then it became, it, it did become more sophisticated after that. We got, you know, as we, as we got into it, um, but that's how that kind of sort of came into play. But we, you know, and we didn't think we were doing anything like radical. Like we weren't trying to be like weird or radical or anything. It was really sort of like, that was kind of what was, it was like this kind of shared idea that was happening at that time of just like experimentation is, 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 you know, where we were finding joy, where, we were, you know, it was like, it was really political in a way. It was just like, we don't want to, you know, be part of the, um, this sort of standardized society of music or something like that. Hey, Thurston. Hey, man. Um, listening to the last question, I was thinking about something that you said earlier in the talk, and that was that you were really attracted to any like artist or writer or like any kind of work that's produced with this understanding of the history behind that medium. And I was thinking about how so much of what Sonic Youth did and so much of what you've done in your career has been like kind of this detachment from the history of rock and roll or like guitar-based music. And so I suppose my question is for you, like, do you feel like for what Sonic Youth did when you guys started, like the beginnings of Sonic Youth, do you feel like it was necessary for you to understand the history and lineage of rock and roll as like an American cultural form for you to do what you did? I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I just think it's something, I think it's an aspect that can be really, um, that could give value to, to the work, you know? I mean, some of the, you know, some of the most interesting work in any discipline is work that sort of comes out of, a, out of like Nowheresville, you know, and I'm really into history and I'm really into humanity and like what that kind of common, uh, knowledge is, or sort of that, um, what that, that memory is that sort of runs through, um, 
the, the spiritual and the cellular, you know, history of, of, of people on earth. And so I, that to me is really just always really fascinating and curious and it infuses the, the work. And that's sort of what, you know, I find that's what art is. And so, um, I don't know if that's answering your question, but you know, I mean, Sonic Youth never was never really self analytical. We never really had any game plan and there was never any, um, any ambition towards sort of reaching any specific goal. It was always about the goal was the journey, you know? And so I think we sort of figured that out pretty early on. Later on, like, you know, in the late eighties, you know, when we sort of went to working with like a corporate enterprise like Geffen Records, there was always this pressure of like, oh, you could be like the punk rock Pink Floyd if you really sort of focus or something. And I was like, well, no, I'd, I, <laughs> You know, it's just like there was always these expectations of, of trying to capitalize on, on something that to me was the sort of, we would kind of react against. I mean, we did, the first record on Geffen was this record Goo, and then we did this record Dirty, and then things started happening, you know, all over with the, with the success of, of Nirvana. And they were just a band that was, you know, kind of half generation younger than us, but they, they were sort of um, focusing more on sort of, on what punk rock was, whereas in a way, that record Dirty was kind of also like this really heavy record and all this kind of more heavy sort of American music was sort of happening at that time. And I think in a way it was almost really expected for us to do a record after that really focused on that and and kind of fine-tuned it a little bit and kind of made it possibly a, a bit more, um, you know, I don't know, sellable or something, something that was maybe closer to... Um, Stone Temple Pilots and less about like, you know, Royal Trucks <laughs> or something. I think we made a really a conscious decision to sort of um, not go that way because we weren't really interested in that so much of that kind of big rock thing. And we were really more sort of interested in what was happening um, at the same time concurrently with bands that were sort of uh, investigating um, possibly more sort of experimental slash introspective music be it something like Royal Trucks or like Lou Barlow's music outside of Dinosaur at that time, which was becoming Sebado and, or somebody outsider like Daniel Johnston, you know, or the beginnings of a band like Pavement who were just sort of coming up. And that was really interesting to us uh, more so, or even like, you know, or the, the history of bands like the Raincoats or whatever, as opposed to sort of becoming more and more sort of big rock, grunge, trunk, chunky kind of, you know, and, um, and, so in a way, I think Geffen Records was really disappointed that we kind of went that way, but that's sort of what we were, we were interested in doing. And it was kind of a bit of a commercial suicide, <laughs> you know. Um, but I'm sort of like, I, I will always sort of be glad that we made that decision against sort of, I don't know, going towards the ring, you know, that was kind of dangling in front of our face. Hey, uh Thurston, this is a pretty specific question, but there's a little bit of legend that goes to this. What really happened on the first London show for Sonic Youth during like the Confusion of Sex era? Because I heard about like amplifiers blowing up and things like that. The first what show? The first London show. The first London show. <laughs> um, we were, the first time we went over to uh, Europe, it was booked by this guy who was booking uh, Glenn Bronco's ensemble and Lee Ronaldo and I went over uh, and played with Glenn and every place we played, we kind of booked a gig for Sonic Youth and we had, 
our first record, and then we had tapes of our second record, Confusion is Sex, and uh, we were giving that tape to these promoters, and we were giving the first album, and, and just our association with Glenn, and Glenn was kind of, uh, Glenn had some kind of profile at that point. He was playing mostly sort of like in more um, like art world uh places, museums and galleries, but he would also play venues, clubs and some theaters. But every every country we went to, we were trying to um, book gigs for the band and w we did. And um, so we had this somewhat of a tour aligned with no equipment or anything. We just, we just flew Bob Burt and Kim over and then we played on rented equipment and it was a bit of a disaster everywhere we went. It wasn't just London. I mean, every, amps blew up all over Europe, and uh, and uh, but in we 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 had absolutely no money, and we were just like getting from one place to the next. Uh, um, and then we found out that we had a gig in London through some guy who we knew who was working at Rough Trade. He was part of Rough Trade England, and he was involved with um, Nina Cannell, who was one of uh, the, the musicians in a group called UT, UT. It was, a, uh, it was, it was three women um, who were part of the no wave scene in New York, but they were Londoners, uh, a couple of them were, and one was, one was US, and, and they were friends of ours. And we used to play with UT when we were first starting and, and we were friendly with them. And so Nina was like, oh, um, the guy I'm seeing who works at Rough Trade, he think he can get you a gig in London at the end of your Euro thing. And we sort of made the phone calls and we established this connection. And somehow we got on a ferry to London and we had tickets to go back to New York from Heathrow. And we got there and we were just, we were just completely um, impoverished. And we found out where this venue was and we went there and it was... The gig was um, SBK, who were an industrial band from Australia. SBK stands for Surgical Penis Clinic. And I had seen them before, and I was really, I was a big SBK fan. They had, they actually came to New York and played a, a matinee at CBGB's, and they showed like hospital vivisection films, and they, and they wore like war paint, and they just smashed metal, and it was like stun volume. It was f fucking great. And, uh, and so I was really like excited to be playing with SBK. And, uh, but um, what had happened is SBK decided to go more into like a um, sort of like a, like dance twelve inch territory, like they, and so that was kind of uh, they weren't they weren't the same group, and uh, <laughs> and also on the bill was this woman Danielle Dax, and who also was really curious about because she was involved with. Uh, um, this thing called the Lemon Kittens, which was like kind of a cool underground London band that I, I was aware of. So I was really excited about being on this bill. And it was supposed to be Daniel Dax, Sonic Youth, and SBK. And I was like, this, this rules. This is going to be so great. We're, we're in London. We're gonna, this is such a cool gig. <laughs> and we got there. And, uh, and Daniel Dax says, like, no, I'm going on second. And we're like, no, no, we're, we're, we're built second. And she goes, no, I'm going on second. I live here and you guys have been abroad and I've never done that. So, uh, I think I should go in second. And I also have a song that's being played and it's, it's in the enemy underground charts right now. And I, you know, so she was really mean to us and, uh, and we were just like, we didn't know what to do. And so we kind of begrudgingly, we went on first and there was very few people there at that time. It was at a venue that was simply called the venue. And, uh, 
And so we, we sort of came on stage and there were some people sort of in the distance in this room, like just kind of like around the bar area. And, uh, and it was sort of a rather large theater. And we came out and we just sort of had this, I don't know where the gear came from. And we started playing and all the amp, none of the amps really worked. They were just like, <laughs> and we started playing what we were playing at that time, which is like Burning Spear and these songs. And we're, and, and, uh, trying to sort of crash through this set. And I think after about 15 minutes, well, Lee stopped playing because his amp, I mean, his smoke was physically coming out of his amp. And he was just standing there just laughing, you know, just like, I, you know, what am I supposed to do? And uh, I think I just started screaming in the mic. And and then the, they had these huge, heavy English curtains on the side of the stage and they started closing. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, God, this is like the worst, like, gig ever I mean it's so bad and we're in London is like of all places and there was like these two boys like just leaning on the stage staring at us and they were just like in awe and they were just like this is brilliant this is brilliant <laughs> and uh and I remember seeing them and and as the curtain was closing and they were looking up at us I was just like thrashing the curtains with my with my guitar and then it, then we were gone and then we and uh we went kind of like with our tail between our legs, went to Victoria train station and slept on benches. And then we caught like a, cause the trains close at, at midnight and there's nothing, there's no, there's no uh, inner city travel. And uh, at 6am the trains or five, 6am you wake up and we get on a train to Heathrow. And then we, we got out of there and we came home to New York and we figured like, well, that was an experience. Um, that's too bad about London. And then, you know, and then, you know, a week or so later, uh, I w you know, I would always sort of steal the enemy uh, off of the newsstand in New York. Um, I would go down to Gem Spa, which is like that magazine newsstand that you see on the back of the first New York Dolls album cover. And it would, and I would steal the music papers because they were so expensive, the, the English news, but they would have enemy and sounds and melody maker. And so I would sort of walk away with them. And lo and behold, I mean, there was a, uh, a review of that, gig in the enemy and um i couldn't believe it and i feared for the worst but it started out and it said sonic youth were the best thing on eight legs this evening and it just disparaged um sbk for being like turning into like a 12 inch dance uh, industrial disco band and it thrashed daniel dax you just like well, this is the worst thing ever you know and it's like, like but this group from new york just was like really was really interesting and really weird and just like you know who are they and blah 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 and that kind of was really cool because at some point um we got you know there was a gentleman named paul smith who was working with cabaret voltaire who had a label and he kind of saw that and he and that piqued his interest and he kind of found us eventually you know within a, a year or so and um and he actually sent somebody over to like see us play and and then he found us and one thing led to the other and then we kind of got we went back over there and we became sort of you know critically uh appreciated through you know through his through him and so yeah that's that's the full story in in some kind of nutshell the first london gig <laughs> Uh, on that note, <laughs> that incredible story. Thank you so much to everyone who came here today. Thank you, Thurston. Thank Thanks you, Jen. So Thank Thanks you, Pitchfork so and MailChimp. <laughs> I hope you all have a great evening. Thank you. This has been Inside Out, a series of podcasts from Pitchfork and the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago that explores new perspectives on music, art, and culture. 
Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Build your brand, sell more stuff. This podcast was produced by Elliot Einhorn and Mark Yoshizumi and engineered by Mark Yoshizumi with Rich Norwood and Alfonso Delgado. Inside Out is co-curated by Elliot Einhorn and executive produced by Seth Dodson. Thanks to the MCA for hosting the event.